If you would turn in your Bibles to the book of Titus this morning, if you haven't already, make sure you pass your friendship registry, which is the black binder at the end of your pew. And that's, again, the way that we communicate, whether you're a first-time guest or a long-time member. All of us are asked to assign this and participate in uh, giving the information that's needed, uh, as well as opportunities to sign up and be a part of uh, some of the things that are going on within the church. But turn in your Bibles uh, to Titus. We begin a new series Uh, looking verse by verse at this uh, three-chapter letter that we've entitled Setting a Straight. And today we want to get some first impressions of what I want to call a first-century letter. And so we're going to be focusing uh, pretty much the rest of this year into January uh, looking at this book. It is the desire uh, for us to be set straight when it comes to God's plan for us as individuals and us as a church. Now, some may ask, what would a book like Titus, written some 2,000 years ago, have to say to us with all the technology, with all of the uh, upgrades in in our lives that we have compared to uh, the first century? And my answer to that question is this book can teach us a ton. You know, there never will be a day or a time where we will look around this local church and say, look at all that's going on. Everything is in order. There is no work for this church left to do. Never will there be a time where we will have accomplished everything that God has for us. There will never be a time where we will look out amongst the hundreds of people that call Village Bible Church their home and say there are no broken relationships. All is well. Everybody is getting along. There'll never be a time where we will look out at the ministry of this church and not see uh, issues of defective doctrine within our own minds and in our own thinking. It's true of the church, and it's true for us as families. As much as Amanda and I would love to look at our three boys and say, look, they're set, they're ready. If we didn't teach them another thing, they would be perfect. If you know my boys, you know that's not the case. Life has a way of mixing things up. Life has a way of setting things in in, in disarray instead of order. And so whether it's in the church or whether it's in our lives, the issues of life and our own battles with sin cause an ongoing and lifelong call to refining who we are and what we're all about. Because life has a way of messing everything up. Our sin and our prideful desires and selfish desires uh, tend to lead us down a road of ineffectiveness instead of a road of effective ministry and an effective life. So right when we think that we have fixed everything, just like any appliance in a home, right when everything seems to be running well, something else breaks. Another thing causes trouble. It's because of this cycle that we as believers must be apt to realigning and refining who we are. Always correcting, always changing up, getting away from that which is defective to that which will cause us to be incredibly effective for the cause of Christ. Only the proud or the arrogant or even the ignorant would think that this cycle doesn't exist. We're prideful or we're ignorant if we think that Everything is all put together, especially here in the church. Now, I am here to tell you, we we have a great church here, a church that has a lot of wonderful things going on. But let us be honest. 
there's a lot of work left to be done. There are a lot of things that need to be set straight. And this book of Titus is going to teach us what it means to be set straight. Not just some of us. This isn't uh, me setting you straight or you setting me straight. But it is God setting all of us straight in different ways. And so this is a book that will rebuke. This is a book that will encourage. But it's a book that will challenge all of us at different places in our lives. Now, Some of you may say, well, what's so big about setting things straight? Why is it so important that we're always refining? Can't we just say we're comfortable with where we're at? This is quite a laborious activity of constantly re, uh, refining, if you will, uh, that which is lacking in our church. Can't we just say, you know what, uh, above average is perfect and we'll just stick with above average and, and we'll be fine. If you've ever driven a car for any amount of time or owned your own vehicle, you know the importance of making sure your car is in alignment. Making sure, now you say, well, that, 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 that's just something that mechanics say to get you to spend the extra $250. You really don't need your car to be aligned. But if you've ever spent any time underneath the car, especially looking at the tires, you recognize the importance of an aligned vehicle. Because an aligned vehicle will allow your tires to wear evenly. If you've ever seen a a car that is out of alignment, you will find a car that is wearing out its tires in an unnecessary way. And it's causing unnecessary cost to you, the owner. Likewise, because of sin, and because of our lives, and because of the culture that we live in, we in the church find ourselves out of alignment And as a result of being out of alignment, we find unnecessary wear in our lives. And so as individuals, we bring our out-of-alignment lives into the church. And as a result of a church being filled with people who are out of alignment, so the church also finds itself out of alignment. And as a result of that, there's unnecessary wear within the church. There's strife. There's conflict. There are people that are serving and, and, and are in roles that they shouldn't be. There's teaching that's going on that, that shouldn't be being taught because it's against the very essence and very words of our Lord and Savior in Scripture. Because of it, we have people who lack hope, people who lack an understanding of the gospel. Because we live in a world that's out of linemen, we bring that garbage into this place and into the ministry of this body And Titus stands and it says, amidst our culture, amidst our sin, it is time to get realigned. And so every week that we look at this incredible letter, we're going to be realigned. And it's not always going to be fun. There are a couple passages of scripture in here that I am not looking forward to preaching to. There's going to be a message that I'm going to have to speak as a man into the lives of women, of which I've spent zero time in my life on earth ever being. That's scary for a pastor. And it's going to be my job to proclaim God's realignment. That's not easy. During that same period of Scripture, I'm going to speak to you who are older and more mature. At the ripe old age of 34, and an immature many times 34-year-old, I might add. But I'm going to be asked to realign Uh, some of the thoughts and and some of the uh, ministry and desires that you who are older and more mature may struggle with and may have to fight. And even worse than that, I'm going to have to speak to my peers 
and what it means to be young men and women. I'm going to speak against many times that which is culturally appropriate and that which is culturally accepted. And the question will be, my friends, in that day, and that moment, will we receive the realignment that the Word of God calls us to, or will we pursue that which brings wear and tear, that which the culture says we should be a, far, we should be a part of? So today we do an introduction. Introductions are difficult because you don't want to preach on any particular part of the book any more than you need to because you'll be dealing with that in the coming weeks, and I don't want to be redundant. But let's begin by some opening uh, understanding of this introduction. Let me give you some background information. You might want to just write some of these things down. But these are simple observations from our text. And then what I want to do is I want to look at uh, the two men that are most talked about in this letter. And then I want to look at some of the themes. And then we're going to apply these things to our lives. And then next week we will get into verses 1 through 4 and begin to look at it more in depth. But let's look at the introduction for a moment. There's a couple pieces of background information that we need. First of all, we recognize that Titus is receiving a letter from the Apostle Paul. And Titus finds himself on the island of Crete. The island of Crete is still around. This isn't something that we can't find. But the island of Crete sits in the middle of the Mediterranean Sea. It is a part of the, uh, Greek, uh, the Greece nation, of course, and uh, just south of modern-day Greece, sitting there in the Mediterranean, is the uh, small island of Crete that has an incredible history uh, to it. And the text tells us that Titus is left there to complete unfinished business, to help make the church be the most impacting organism that God had called it to be. Not just one church, but it says to appoint uh, leaders in all of the churches in all of the cities of Crete. And so Titus has this role taking over for the apostle of serving the church in this corporate way to make it the best that it can be. Now, I'd be remiss if I didn't say that the role that Titus had, though it may be a bit different in the way that it is played out, all of us are called to be Tituses. All of us are a part of this local body. And the job that we have in this local body is to see that the unfinished work of the gospel of Jesus Christ is completed. So that we will be able to stand in the day of Christ's coming and say we have completed the task. Or we'll be found busy at work doing that. And so all of us must be a part of the work that Titus has been a part of. Because just like Titus, we are one who has been sent for a particular geographical area to make the church the best place that God has called it to be. And that's our task and that's our goal. It was the goal of Titus's as well. So I want to begin this journey of look, looking at how this man set things straight under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. We're going to do something here. We're going to look at this letter, and I'm going to ask you to stand, and I'm going to read for about five minutes. I timed it out, but I want us to look at this whole letter. And we're going to stand for the reading of God's Word, and I'm going to read in its entirety, Titus, the entire book, And then we will get into our text. So let's stand and let's look at this great letter. This letter that they would have received in Crete from the Apostle Paul. It says, Paul, a servant of God and an apostle of Jesus Christ, for the faith of God's elect and the knowledge of the truth that leads to godliness, a faith and knowledge resting on the hope of eternal life, 
which God, who does not lie, promised before the beginning of time. And at his appointed season, he brought his word to light through the preaching entrusted to me by the command of God, our Savior. To Titus, my true son in our common faith, grace and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus, our Savior. The reason I left you in Crete was that you might straighten out what was left unfinished and appoint elders in every town as I directed you. Now an elder must be blameless, the husband of but one wife, a man whose children believe and are not open to the charge of being wild and disobedient. Since an overseer is entrusted with God's work, he must be blameless, not overbearing, not quick-tempered, not given to drunkenness, not violent, not pursuing dishonest gain. Rather, he must be hospitable, one who loves what is good, who is self-controlled, who is upright, holy, and disciplined. He must hold firmly to the trustworthy message as it has been taught, so that he can encourage others by sound doctrine and refute those who oppose it. For there are many rebellious people, mere talkers and deceivers, especially those of the circumcision group. They must be silenced because they are ruining whole households by teaching things they ought not to teach, and that for the sake of dishonest gain. Even one of their own prophets has said, Cretans are always liars, evil brutes, lazy gluttons. This testimony is true. Therefore, rebuke them sharply so that they will be sound in the faith and will pay no attention to Jewish myths and to the commands of those who reject the truth. To the pure, all things are pure. But to those who are corrupted and do not believe, nothing is pure. In fact, both their minds and consciences are corrupted. They claim to know God by their they, need, they claim to know God, but by their actions they deny him. They are detestable, disobedient, and unfit for doing anything good. You must teach what is in accord with sound doctrine. Teach the older men to be temperate, worthy of respect, self-controlled, sound in faith, in love and in endurance. Likewise, teach the older women to be reverent in the way they live, not to be slanderers or addicted to too much wine, but to teach what is good. Then they can train the younger women to love their husbands and children, to be self-controlled and pure, to be busy at home, to be kind, and to be subject to their husbands so that no one will malign the word of God. Similarly, encourage the young men to be self-controlled. In everything, set them In everything, set them as an example by doing what is good. In your teaching, show integrity, seriousness, and soundness of speech that cannot be condemned, so that those who oppose you may be ashamed because they have nothing bad to say about us. Teach slaves to be subject to their masters in everything, to try to please them, not to talk back to them, and not to steal from them, but to show that they can be fully trusted, so that in every way they can make the teaching about our God our Savior, attractive. For the grace of God that brings salvation has appeared to all men. It teaches us to say no to ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in this present age while we wait for the blessed hope, the glorious appearing of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself up for us to redeem us from all wickedness and to purify himself a people to purify for himself a people that are his very own, eager to do what is good. 
These, then, are the things you should teach. Encourage and rebuke with all authority. Do not let anyone despise you. Remind the people to be subject to rulers and authorities, to be obedient, to be ready to do whatever is good, to slander no one, to be peaceable and considerate, and to show true humility toward all men. At one time, we too were foolish, disobedient, deceived, and enslaved by all kinds of passions and pleasures. We lived in malice and envy, being hated and hating one another. But when the kindness and love of God our Savior appeared, he saved us not because of the righteous things we have done, but because of his mercy. He has saved us through the washing of rebirth and renewal by the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us generously through Jesus Christ our Savior, so that having been justified by his grace, we might become heirs, having the hope of eternal life. This is a trustworthy saying. And I want you to stress these things so that those who have trusted in God may be careful to devote themselves to doing what is good. These things are excellent and profitable for everyone. But avoid foolish controversies and genealogies and arguments and quarrels about the law because these are unprofitable and useless. Warn a divisive person once and then warn him a second time. After that, have nothing to do with him. You may be sure that such a man is warped and sinful and he is self-condemned. As soon as I send Artemis and Tychicus to you, do your best to come to me at Nicopolis because I have decided to winter there. Do everything you can to help Zenos and the lawyer, Zenos the lawyer, and Apollos on their way and see that they have everything they need. Our people must learn to devote themselves to doing what is good in order that they may provide for daily necessities and not live unproductive lives. Everyone with me sends you greetings. Greet those who love us in the faith. Grace be with you all. Amen. Let's pray. Father God, you are glorified when we read your word. And Lord, we stand in reverence to this word, this word that will change the way we look at life. It will change the way we live for you. Thank you for the written word. Thank you for this letter that you inspired Paul to write that would help those uh, churches in Crete that help us today to be the church that you've called us to be. Now open our eyes, open our hearts to what you have for us this morning and throughout this series so that with our lives we may be productive and with our lives your name would not be slandered even by those who call us our enemies. That we may bring glory to you in all that we do. In Christ's name we pray and all God's people said, amen. Thank you. You may be seated. As we look at this book, we come to the first word that brings us our first point this morning, and that is if we want to understand the book of Titus, we must understand and recognize Paul, the messenger. The first point this morning is that Paul is the messenger of this book. This is the same Paul, the same Apostle Paul, who was Saul before his conversion on the road to Damascus. This Saul who hated Christianity, who hated Christ, who had made it his number one desire to destroy the church and the people who followed the way of Christ, this same Paul would be brought to his knees as he sees on the noonday sky just outside of Damascus the risen Lord and Savior. And from that point on, Saul 
has his name changed to Paul, and not just his name, but his entire life and ministry and mission changes. Instead of being an opponent for Christ, he becomes the chief spokesman of New Testament Christianity for the Greek and Roman world. This Paul would be the one who would go into many churches and plant them and establish these churches for the glory to proclaim the grace of Jesus Christ. It is this Paul who writes this letter. It is this Paul, the same Paul, who would write the two letters, in fact, the four letters before this, First and Second Thessalonians, First and Second Timothy, and now the book of Titus. Titus is one of four pastoral or personal letters, letters that are written to people, his disciples, more than they are written to churches, as the book of First and Second Corinthians, as the book of Romans, are written to. And even the uh, letters to Galatian, the Galatian people, and the Philippians, and the Colossians. But these are personal. And in them we see the heart of Paul. The heart of this apostle who has much to teach us. But notice that when he says that his name is Paul, you would have thought that all kinds of resumes would have come out. That his name would have been put in the spotlight. And he would have said, hey, I'm Paul. I'm an important guy. Let me articulate to you how great and awesome I am. Let me explain to you all of the accomplishments. One of the things we see in our culture is that when pastors become well-known and and start writing books, you'll you'll look on the back jacket of a book, and it will say how, how, how great they are at ministry, how many people attend their churches, how many thousands have come to know Christ under their ministry, how many books that they have written. But this isn't the example that Paul gives. Notice what Paul says in verse 1. He starts out and he says, I am Paul. I'm the one writing this. And he says, I am a servant of God. Now, Paul could have totally had the right to articulate how great and awesome he was. If he was writing today within our culture, falling to some of the same advertising ploys that we do, he would have said, I am Paul, the world-renowned pastor and teacher and author. I've planted more churches than anyone else in the first century. I speak to audiences larger than that of even Jesus Christ. I have spoken and had audiences with leaders and kings. I've met the risen Jesus. I've been to heaven and back, and I'm able to tell you about it. I have healed. I've even raised the dead. And you can follow me on Twitter. You can follow me on Facebook. And all my material can be found on www.iampaul.com. But what does he say? He says, Paul, a servant of God. Paul uses the Greek word doulos. It means a slave. And this is incredibly important for us to not only understand Paul, but to understand our lives as believers. Paul is living out what he writes to the Philippians when he says, forgetting what is behind all the good stuff that we talked about last week, all of those things that are so important, my resume and all my accomplishments, he says, I consider them rubbish for the cause of Christ. He says, I don't need to tell you about all the great and wonderful things. That's all uh, between me and God. That's, That's my race. That's my running the, the, the race of the faith of God. But I want you to know 
that my position is that of a slave. He could have written anything, but he says, I'm a doulos. A doulos was an individual who was a slave, many times spoken of the slaves that were in the bottom of any kind of large vessel. They would have sails for those large vessels, but they would also have oars on the side of those vessels where uh, hundreds of men would be in the bottom of the, the hole of the ship, and they would be rowing. And Paul says in another passage of Scripture, I am like an under-Roman who is rowing for the cause of Christ. Now you say, a guy like Paul, he should be up at the top of the boat, top of the ship, directing at the steering wheel, if you will, of that great ship. He was a great apostle and great leader, and yet he says, I'm a slave. This slave is one who had been purchased by another. This slave is one who has now called, has been called to surrender his rights to another, to a master. But I need you to understand, Donald Gray Barnhouse says in his commentary on the book of Titus that a slave many times in the first century would be a slave for a period of time, a sort of indentured servanthood. And after a period of time, let's say seven years would go by, a slave would be released. But many times a doulos would be one who, though he has been set free, knows that a life under the house of his master is far better than trying to live a life apart from him. And so a doulos would would look at his life and say, yes, I could be free, but I would be free and it would cause all this difficulty and all this trial. I would rather not live life apart from my master. He's been gracious, he's been kind, he's been good to me. And so that slave would say, I know I've been set free, But it is my desire, it is my want to remain under your leading and your guidance because there's blessing, there's protection, there's well-being there. This is important for us. You say, well, Tim, it's just a salutation. I, Paul, a servant of God. But I will tell you in that phrase is a job description for you and I. We, too, are slaves. Oh, we're so busy in telling everybody of who we are and how important we are. And here's the Apostle Paul saying, I am but a slave. I'm nothing important. I am one who is under the leadership of Jesus Christ. You know, we've been bought with a price. We are not our own. We are owned by God. And because we have been purchased by God... We are to surrender our wills. And the book of Romans tells us that we are to offer our bodies as living sacrifices. We are not to live life on our own, but we are going to be held accountable for the life that we live for our master and our king. But just like Paul, we too are not held under under hostility and ill treatment. But we have a master who loves us. A master who sent his son Jesus to die in our place. And the choice that we have to make is, I could live my life apart from God, but as I've recognized, I would rather be a slave for God than a king of this world. And some of us need to recognize that this morning. Because some of us would rather be that king. Some of us would rather be free on our own, unchained by that which God has over us. And Paul says, I don't want it. I'm a slave. 
Now notice a couple things about this. He is a slave in every sense of the word. He doesn't, he doesn't uh, redefine the word. He doesn't classify the word with a couple uh, things and say, well, I'm a slave when it comes to my Christianity, but, but when it comes to my life, I still do my own thing. He is a slave in every shape and sense of the word. You see, this is important for us because Paul tells us that if you're going to be a slave for Christ, it isn't just a slave on Sundays, but it's a slave Monday through Sunday or Sunday through Saturday. You're not just a slave when it comes to your involvement with the church or when nobody else is looking, but you're a slave at all times and in all ways. In fact, I believe that Titus is telling slaves in this sense of the word how to live. How we ought to be people who live under the master's hand and under the master's roof and how we ought to conduct our lives. But we have a culture here in in our churches that say that we can be a slave when we want to be, that we listen when we think we have to. But Paul makes it abundantly clear that it's not for a particular task or for a particular time, but all of his life is dedicated to being a slave to Christ. Are you a slave this morning? Are you one who recognizes that you've been purchased? Are you one who recognizes that you are a steward in the household of God? Are you one who recognizes that every moment of the day, wherever you may find yourself, that you know you are always a slave? One who is called to serve his master. Paul understood this, and we need to as well. The second thing that he brings up is he says, Paul, a doulos of God, a slave, a servant, and an apostle of Jesus Christ. The Greek word there is simply uh, apostolos. I'm sorry, I messed up my notes here. Apostolos, which means sent one. That's simply what it means. It's a word that doesn't speak about position because if that's what Paul is saying, he's saying, I am a doulos, but I'm an apostolos, and those two things don't seem to agree because an apostle is an important figure. And what Paul isn't saying is that my position is one of slave, but a slave who's got some real clout. His position is that of a slave. The job that he has is that he is an apostle. And so we see within this text an important understanding that our position is a slave unto God. But God, because of his graciousness and because of his allowance, doesn't keep us in some menial task, but sends us forth to productive and vibrant ministry. And he sends forth Paul as an apostle. An apostle is best described as an ambassador for Christ. I like this definition. An apostle is one who serves on the credentials of another. An ambassador, we have many ambassadors that are here in the United States serving different countries and foreign uh, kings and rulers. But ambassador never serves on his own credentials. He says, I'm an ambassador of of England to the United States. I'm an ambassador uh, from Iraq to the United States. I serve the king whom I serve. I speak on behalf of the king. I communicate what the king wants me to communicate, and in and of myself, I am nothing but a messenger. Paul says, I'm an apostle. Now, Paul served as an apostle, one of the uh, few apostles that we have in Christianity, because we know of only uh, 12 uh, that were apostles, plus Paul, who served as an apostle. 
And we need to recognize that that does hold a significant place for Paul. But all of us are called to be sent ones. All of us are called to be ambassadors. Turn in your Bibles for a moment to 2 Corinthians. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 20. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 20. And keep your finger in the book of of Titus. I just want to show you some important uh, truths that we see here. Just as Paul is one who is sent, so we too have been sent as ambassadors. Notice what 2 Corinthians 5.20 says. We are therefore Christ, what is that word there? Ambassadors. What is the job of an ambassador? We are as if God were making his appeal through us that we implore you on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. The job that we have is to speak on behalf of God, not words of our own, but on the words of God, be reconciled to God. And the Apostle Paul recognizes this and knows this, and he knows that he has a job of being the messenger to serve and to proclaim the goodness of Christ to the people in Crete and to Titus. Connecting these two things, the doulos and apostolos, the slave and the apostle is connected, I believe Peter puts it most beautifully, uh, in uh, 1 Peter chapter 2. Turn there for a moment. 1 Peter chapter 2. 1 Peter chapter 2 tells us how these two things are connected. 1 Peter chapter 2 verses 9 and 10. Peter says to the church, he says in verse 9, But you are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people belonging to God, that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his wonderful light. Once you were not a people, but now you are the people of God. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Going on, he says, Dear friends, I urge you as aliens and strangers in this world to abstain from sinful desires which wage against your soul. We are those who were slaves to the darkness. And our master came. Jesus, our King, came, and he snatched us out of that darkness, and he brought us into his wonderful light. And so no longer are we slaves to ourselves and slaves to sin, but now we are slaves to Christ. And what does he call us to do? Peter says to proclaim the excellencies, the greatness That which is marvelous, the gospel of Jesus Christ. Our job is to be ambassadors who say, I was once in sin. I was once dying in my selfish desires and pursuits. I was once a part of the world system, but now my master has saved me. And my job is to proclaim to the world around me the greatness of him who called me out of that life. We're slaves and we're those who are sent. When Paul speaks of this, he speaks of two things that I think are of great importance. He speaks of that ministry and that life of humility and that of authority. And it's important that we understand both of those. Charles Spurgeon says that you cannot have the apostle until you first experience being a slave. There's a lot of us who want the authority There's a lot of us who like to have the authority, but not the humility. Paul reminds us that humility always comes before authority. I'm 
reminded of the truth that Paul articulates in his letter to the Corinthian church when he says to the church at Corinth, we are jars of clay. There's the humility. We're we're really nothing special. But what do those jars of clay contain? An amazing treasure. And God has given us the authority. God has given us the privilege to be his ambassadors. And don't think that the ministry makes you anything more. What a truth that I have to understand and know as one who has the incredible opportunity to be listened to every week. And I could fall prey to saying, look at the authority that I have. Look at the audience that I have. Two services of people listen to me. But then Paul reminds me, Tim, you are but a slave. All you are, Tim, is a a jar of clay. And God has seen fit to allow you to speak on his behalf. So don't think it's about authority. The authority comes from God. It's all of God, not of us. I've told people, and I'm reminded of it, God used a donkey, I'll keep it G-rated, God used a donkey to speak. Why wouldn't he use someone like me? If he used a donkey in the Old Testament, why wouldn't he use a donkey to speak to you guys? God will use anybody. You don't have to be perfect. You don't, all you have to be is a slave. One who is sent. Now Paul communicates his humility and authority, and he does it in that order. We have a high calling as Christians, but never think that that high calling makes us any higher than anyone else. Now notice, he calls Paul to write a letter to set people straight, to set the churches in Crete straight. But notice the next person that we come to. Go down to verse 4. He writes this to Titus. And I want to look at Titus the man. Sir William Ramsey once said that Titus was the most mysterious man in all of early church history. We don't know a lot about Titus, this guy that gets a letter written to him. We don't know much about him. In fact, he's only spoken about 26 times in the New Testament, which may seem like a lot. But he's an active individual as we piece those 26 pieces of Scripture together. And yet, in the time of the apostles where he would have been most active, he is not mentioned. Most of the early church fathers believe the reason for this omission is that Luke and Titus were brothers. And that the reason why Luke doesn't speak about him is like, what brother would ever speak about another brother? Yeah, there's a lot of great things going on in Titus. Who? I don't know no Titus. And so he's not mentioned, even though he is there in other passages of Scripture, we'll see that he is actively involved in much of what is being written about in the Acts of Apostles. But we see this man, Titus, this true son in our common faith, Paul says. What do we need to know about him? Well, first of all, we need to know that Titus was of Greek heritage, of lineage, and that he had probably come to know Christ in Paul's first visit to Crete. Again, this is important. A ministry that is going to thrive and grow is a ministry that will evangelize and disciple. We begin to think when we read these letters that Titus was this amazing man of God and that he had come out of his mother's womb that way. But we must recognize that Titus was a convert of Paul's. 
He was a convert of Paul's, and we need to recognize that this man was just like you and me. When he came to know Christ, he knew nothing of the faith. When he came to know Christ, he only knew the culture that he was living in. He didn't know the Bible backwards and front. He didn't know all the names of all the prophets and all the history of Israel. But he was probably just like you and I, a neophyte to this faith. But let me help you with something. Titus didn't stay there. And that doesn't mean that Titus is any better than the rest of us. But Titus was diligent in placing himself under the discipleship of a great man, a great mentor, who taught him the ways of Christ. And we need to do the same thing. We too need to be discipled. We too, if we are older in the faith and and wiser in the faith, need to be evangelizing and raising up other believers. Some of them are under our own roof. Others of them we work with. Other of them, we live in the same neighborhood, but God has called us to evangelize and not just to get them to sign on the dotted line, but to disciple them. So just like Timothy and Barnabas and and, and Silas and now Titus, we would have a group of people who we have trained and taught the ways of Christ. It's not the role of the pastors to do that. It is our job to equip you to be able to do those things. And Paul shows us how that is done. He's a convert. He's a true son. And not speaking of a biological nature, but that of a spiritual nature. Which again reminds us that the discipleship process isn't simply a 12-week process that we walk through a workbook. Those are helpful. But that true and real discipleship will create such a dynamic relationship between the discipler and the disciplee that they will become like father and son. God has blessed me with that kind of relationship, one with my biological father, and I told you before, one with the youth pastor that that served here, John Avery. I talk to John as if he's my father. He's not my dad, only 13 years older than I am, and yet one who has impacted my life in such a remarkable way that we have a father-son relationship. Makes him feel old, and that's okay. But you have that kind of relationship. Whether you find yourself new in the faith or you find yourself being actively involved in the work of Christ, who are you discipling? Or who are you being discipled by? You should be doing at least one or the other. And sometimes, as I'm learning, you do both. I am being discipled and I'm also called to disciple others. Paul recognizes this, and I don't want to miss that truth. Number two, he was a companion of Paul's. Not only was he a student of Paul's and a disciple of Paul's, but he was also a companion. We're going to learn that he is around in Jerusalem uh, when we see the Jerusalem conference take place in Acts chapter 15. Titus is there. Again, he's not mentioned, but we're going to see here in a moment in Galatians chapter 2 that Titus is there and a part of it, and he is a remarkable man Because we see not only was he a companion of Paul, but he was a man of conviction. Turn in your Bibles to the book of Galatians for a moment. Galatians chapter 2. And notice what verses 1 through 5 say. Galatians chapter 2, verses 1 through 5. As you're turning there, I'll start reading the context of it. Paul says, starting in chapter 2, 14 years later, I went up again to Jerusalem. This time with Barnabas. I took Titus... Along also, 
I went in response to a revelation and set before them the gospel that I had preached among the Gentiles. But I did this privately to those who seemed to be leaders for fear that I was running or had run my race in vain. Yet not even Titus, who was with me, was compelled to be circumcised even though he was a Greek. This matter arose because some false brothers had infiltrated our ranks to spy on the freedom we have in Christ Jesus and to make us slaves. We did not give in to them for a moment so that the truth of the gospel might remain with you. I want you to understand that moment in church history is a huge event. Because up to that point, Jews were the only uh, followers of Christ. And now all these Greeks and all these Romans, these outside of the Jewish nation, were coming to know Christ. And the issue that was being brought up was the Old Testament uh, practice of circumcision. And so here comes good old Titus. And Titus comes into Jerusalem where Peter and James and John and all the heavy hitters that he was, I'm sure, learning about, these men that walked with Jesus. And some of them were even falling prey to the hypocritical practice of of spending time with those who had followed the ways of the Old Testament thinking and those who had not. And Titus stands resolute. And he says, I will not participate in this. And he was right. He was a man of conviction. And even when it may have been unpopular, even when it may have seemed like there was a better answer, Titus stands by his position, unabated by the pressure. This speaks of a resolve. And this, I believe, is the resolve that causes Paul to send Titus to the church in Corinth. We see in the book of Corinthians, 1 Corinthians, I'm sorry, 2 Corinthians, that Titus would be sent to Corinth, that church that had all kinds of issues and all kinds of problems, and he would send Titus to hand over what is called the severe letter, the letter of rebuke, which can be found in 2 Corinthians 7, 8. This letter that Titus takes with him confronts and rebukes an entire church. How would you have liked that job? You walk in, someone gives you a a letter, And he says, on Sunday, when you go to Village Bible Church in Sugar Grove, I want you to stand up, and I want you to walk up to the pulpit, and I want you to read this letter that is going to say, hey, listen up, all you, you're messing up. How dare you do these things? Oh, by the way, my name is Titus. I'm new to the group. That's what Titus does, which speaks of a man of incredible conviction And so that brings us back to Titus because Titus is going to a place called Crete that is going to create all kinds of opportunities to change the way they live and to change the way they respond to Christ. Next we see he's a comfort to others. 2 Corinthians chapter 7 verse 6 says the following. He says, But God who comforts the downcast comforted us by the coming of Titus and not only by his coming but by also the comfort you had given him. He told us about your longing for me so that my joy was greater than ever. Titus sends this, uh, takes this letter to Corinth, and Paul is sick to his stomach. How is the church at Corinth, this church that he invested all kinds of time with, how are they going to respond? And Titus comes back, and he says, they've responded well, Paul. And he's a comfort to Paul, and he's a comfort to all those who have the cause of Christ as their mission. And Titus is this great man who's a comfort to others. I want you to write down, skip one blank, just to put this one in there as well. He's a caring man. 
He's a caring man in, in that same breath. We see in 2 Corinthians chapter 8, verse 16, it says this, I thank God who put into the heart of Titus the same concern I have for you. Titus had concern for people. He wasn't just this authoritarian figure who could get involved in tough issues and have resolve, but he was caring and he was loving. And as a result of that, he's a colleague of Paul's. Write that down. He's a colleague in ministry, and then, of course, he was caring. Now, notice what he says. If you couldn't have asked for a better resume, notice what Paul says in 2 Corinthians 8, 22 and 23. He says, as for Titus, he is my partner. I'm going to move back to verse 22. I'm sorry. In addition, we are sending with him our brother who has often proved us in many ways that he is zealous and even so because of his great confidence in you. As for Titus, he is my partner and fellow worker among you. As for our brothers, they are representatives of the churches and an honor to Christ. Could the Apostle Paul say the same thing of you and I? As he serves, as he's a slave to Christ, that we too as colleagues in ministry are serving in that way. Titus has much to show us, much to declare to us. What a life of diligence. There's a Scotsman of old who was named Dundas. And it was said of Dundas that he was no great orator, but that he would go out with you in any kind of weather. That's Titus. I don't know if he's still here today, but Keith Duff is a Titus. If you've spent any time in his, with him in ministry, if you've heard him preach, he's no great orator, and he'll say that. But if you had to endure Tim Bedall all the time, none of us would be able to live under that. But we need a Dundas. We need a Keith. We need a Titus who comes in with a caring heart. I, I am caring too, but he's really good at it. Who loves people who loves the cause of Christ, but who's a man of conviction. We need those who will come into the church, who don't have to speak to make their presence known, but through their humble approach to ministry and to life, people say, let's listen to what he has to say. Brothers and sisters, there's a lot of you that could be Tituses today, who should be Tituses. Oh, there's a place for the Pauls, there's a place for the Tims, there's a place that's needed for Tituses at Village Bible Church. Let it be a place filled with Tituses. Finally, and i got to get moving, there needs to be also a look at Titus and its message. I'm not going to spend a lot of time here because, of course, that's what the rest of the series is all about. But there's a couple things that we must recognize. First of all, as we look at the message of title, we must recognize the timing of its writing. It was written between 62 and 64 A.D. We are talking less than one generation after the person uh, of Jesus Christ walked this earth and died on the cross. But it's not so much the dates and times that make it so important, but in the day that it was written in, the culture that it was written in. First, it was written in a day where Christianity was dismissed as nothing but a fairy tale. Sounds like today, doesn't it? What is this Christianity but a bunch of myths and fairy tales? It was written at a time where great heresy and myths were tearing apart churches. 
where they sounded Christian, but, but at the end of it, they were damning heresies. Just go to a Christian bookstore and you'll see all sorts of heresies written by people who say that they are looking towards the cause of Christ. This was written during a time where men of the church and women of the church had to deal with difficult people, where the church had a greater focus on pleasing self than pleasing God. It was within a culture where people were lazy, where they were gluttonous, where they lied, where they didn't care what anybody else said. And I will tell you, we're going to learn that Crete is more American than we might ever want to admit to. The truth of this letter speaks to a church in America better than we would have ever thought. The timing. What about the task? Titus is given the job to set things straight. This would not be easy. It would mean that he would step on toes. It would mean that he would offend. And this is a wonderful reminder for me as a slave of Jesus Christ that the task that God gives me will not be easy. It will not be popular, but it is needed in our generation today. And not just for me, but for you as well. We're not going to be popular when we start proclaiming the things of God. Notice the theme. The task is setting things straight. The theme, I think, is found in verse 1 of Titus, where he says that he's an apostle of Jesus Christ for the faith of God's elect and for the knowledge of the truth that leads to godliness. God doesn't want us just to have knowledge, but a knowledge that transforms lives, a knowledge that transforms us, And Titus gives us the knowledge, but it is to lead to godliness. First of all, godliness in the church. It is to be found in the church. And so chapter 1 is all about the comparison between good and godly leaders in the church, how they're to be qualified, what their lives are to be looking like, and those who are false teachers. And to compare those two and to ask the question in our day, do we have men who serve like Titus Titus 1, 5 through 9 says, Or do we have elders and leaders who lead according to the last part of that chapter 1? So he wants to set us straight when it comes to the church. And that we'll have a knowledge of how the church ought to be run and who ought to be running it that leads us to a godly life. Number two, it involves the conduct. Chapter 2 is going to be teaching various groups how they ought to live. And it's going to challenge us to live differently as men and as women, as young and as old, as slaves and employees of, of uh, bosses and, and employers. And he's going to tell us that the reason why we ought to conduct ourselves differently are found in a couple verses. Notice Titus 2.5. He says, so that no one will malign the word of God. Verse 8 says, so that those that oppose you may be ashamed because they have nothing bad to say about us. Verse 10 says, so that in every way we will make the teaching about God our Savior attractive. Knowledge that leads to godliness that produces an attractive God to the world around us. And finally, our culture. Titus is going to be reminded In chapter 3, verse 1, to remind the people to be subject to rulers and authorities, to be obedient, to do whatever is good, to slander no one, to be peaceable and considerate, and to show true humility towards all men. 
In verse 14, before he closes it, he says that our people must learn to devote themselves to doing what is good in order that they may provide for the daily necessities and not live unproductive lives. My friends, let me close with this. We are going to be bombarded with all kinds of things within our culture that are going to tell us how to live, but this book of Titus is going to tell us how to interact with that culture. And it's going to remind us to live and to work and to serve for the cause of Christ in a different way. Spend some time looking at this book. I know our small groups are going through them and we'll continue to dissect this great book. But let me close with this an introduction. Father God, we come before you and we thank you for this book. We thank you for the truths that are found in it. Now, Lord, I pray that you would enlighten our hearts in the weeks to come to each one of the particular things that you have called us to know about you and about who we are. Father, I pray that we would be challenged and we would be realigned, not just as individuals, but as a church. Father, if we're doing things wrong, if we're missing it, if we're out of whack in any way, Father, I pray that through the book of Titus, you would realign us as a corporate body so that we will glorify and please God in every way and so that your name will not be maligned and that your name would be made great because of the example that we live out and show. So, no, Lord, now we ask that you would send us forth from this place as we fellowship in adult Bible fellowships around some food. Lord, as we fellowship tonight at the Barn Bash, I pray that you would give us a great day, that you would show us your favor, and that we would be able to show the favor of God to all those we come in contact with. To you be glory, honor, and praise in your church and to this world. In your son's name we pray, amen.